This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hello, and welcome or welcome back to Self Work. This is Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm so glad you're here. When I began self-work about four years ago now, gosh, that seems impossible. It's been four years. I wanted to reach out to those of you who might already be interested in psychological and emotional issues. Maybe you're in therapy. To those of you who might have been just diagnosed with depression or anxiety or having some other kind of relationship problem or just problem that you'd like another perspective for. But also to a third group. Those of you who might really believe in the stigma of mental illness and be struggling with it might never even darken the door of a therapist, but are just curious enough to listen to a podcast like Self Work. I actually have a little cold this morning, so I'm hoping that I can make this sound fairly decent. We're going to talk today about what's turned radical acceptance. You know, actually, someone who interviewed me in the preface to our discussion said, yes, and Dr. Rutherford really believes in radical acceptance. And so I looked it up and I realized, yeah, I do. I actually have the book by Tara Brock, but I don't really think I've ever sat down and read it. I've probably skimmed it. But my beliefs and recommendations as a therapist definitely fit that way of thinking. Radical acceptance was also mentioned in the last podcast as a DBT technique. That's dialectical behavior therapy. And dialectical behavior therapy is all about helping people govern more of their emotional reactions to what's happening in their lives. That kind of skill is called an ego skill or a skill that you can practice in your own mind. And the more I read about it in preparation for this episode, I realized I do have certain metaphors that I use all the time to help people accept what they don't want in their lives or they fight to accept. It goes beyond self-acceptance because to me, self-acceptance means identifying and owning all parts of yourself, the parts you like and the parts you don't necessarily like. I very much like a Carl Rogers quote that Tara Brock used in her book. The curious paradox is that when I accept myself just as I am, then I can change. Let me say that again. The curious paradox is that when I accept myself just as I am, then I can change. I've said things like that before, but I love the term paradox because that's exactly what it is. So radical acceptance takes that idea even further, the idea of self-acceptance. So radical acceptance also can bring a much greater ability to cope with what's going on and not suffer as much in the long run. I'll explain more later. The listener email is from someone, a therapist actually, who's dating another person who sounds severely depressed and she doesn't know what to do. So I'll see if I can come up with a couple of ideas for her and all of us who consider ourselves helpers and struggle with the idea of not feeling like we are helping. So in this episode, once again, sponsored by BetterHelp, sit back and relax, or if you're driving or cooking dinner or doing laundry, just listen in as all of us learn more about the concept of radical acceptance and how it can help. Most of you know, if you've listened for a while, that I have a son, one son. After college in Nashville, he moved out to California for a job that, for an engineer, is one of the most exciting places he could ever have worked. He's been in L.A., then in Seattle, and now back again in L.A. 
I began blogging back in 2012, describing my feelings as I worked through what I would label not a severe case of empty nest, but we were and still are very close. And I knew that the distance was going to be hard for me just to realize we couldn't jump in the car and even if it took the whole day, get to where he was. By plane, sure, but it felt different. Just obviously not a part of my daily life anymore, which is the way it's supposed to be. There's also just a different vibe living on the West Coast. So he was going to be living in a culture that I didn't know much about either. Kind of like Dorothy said in The Wizard of Oz, he's not in Kansas anymore. (laughs) Probably a bit of an overstatement on my part. But Arkansas is at the cusp of the Ozark Mountains, and it's a far cry from L.A. Not better or worse necessarily, just very different. I realize now, looking back, that I was doing my best to describe what it felt like to watch your child build a life away from you. That's what I was doing in my blog. I actually called that website Nest Ache because I believed that I needed to move on with building my own life, and every parent does. But first, you had to grieve the end of an era. Some people are actually delighted it's ended and can't wait to move on, but for others like me, the letting go and getting on with it took a little bit of time. I remember a post I wrote, and I'll give you the link in the show notes if you're interested, that describes some of the mixture of pride and joy and loss and sadness that were all tangled up together. Gosh, I think of parents whose children join the military or parents whose children don't launch well, develop mental illness or get into drugs, and obviously your yearnings can be even more complex than mine were, much more complex. It didn't take me too long to work through the emotional part. In fact, by the holiday break of his sophomore year, I was kind of ready for him to go back to school, as he was. My husband and I had built our own lives away from him, and now he had his. We love each other deeply, but the sadness and loss was, and still is, very manageable. Yet occasionally, I'll get the question, don't you wish he was closer? How do you handle the fact that you can't seem as much as you might like to? In preparing for this episode, I realized what I've done is I've used radical acceptance. I hadn't fought the reality of what he and we believed was best for him and best for his life. So I'd been able to move on with less suffering. So I hope that example gives you a very tangible situation, at least in my life, to realize that I could have worried about it or wanted it to be different, but that didn't really change the reality of what it was. Before we go on to talk more about what radical acceptance is and isn't, let's hear a special offer from BetterHelp. When I was approached by BetterHelp now several months ago, COVID had emerged, and I'd maybe conducted a handful of telehealth sessions, mostly when someone was sick and couldn't make it into the office. Now, five months later, I'm even more of a believer in telehealth. It took some getting used to, but actually, clients sometimes seem more relaxed. It fits better into their schedule, and although many have told me they miss seeing me in person, it's still been a very fulfilling relationship. I've even started new patients, and they've told me they had positive experiences, so we've never actually met in person. BetterHelp is rated the number one online therapy service that's available to you wherever you live. Confidential and highly personalized It's much less expensive than normal talk therapy. You can text, have video chats, or just talk on the phone. You outline what you're looking for, and BetterHelp suggests several therapist options for you. If you don't seem to find a way to connect with one, they'll ask you more about what you're looking for and then suggest others. 
I, of course, tried it out before I was going to recommend it to you, and the two therapists I had sessions with listened well and made great suggestions for me, and one said, actually, I might make myself. I talked about my own panic disorder and a very scary situation I'd been through, and they were caring and thoughtful, and I was amazed at how easy it was to get in touch with them to make time changes, for example. Although BetterHelp can't be there in emergencies, nor could any online provider, they have all kinds of information about what you can do in that special circumstance. And today, BetterHelp has a great savings offer for you. If you use the link trybetterhelp.com slash selfwork, again, that's trybetterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash selfwork, you can enjoy a 10% discount on your first month of sessions. After five months of seeing how people relate to telehealth, I'd highly recommend it. If self-work has helped you, maybe better help can give you an even more personal experience with therapy. In trying to piece together this episode, I've realized what a huge concept radical acceptance is. It's kind of hard to describe it in one podcast. It's everything from accepting change to healthy grieving to changing mental and emotional habits to confusion about whether or not radical acceptance is some kind of weird resignation, which it's not. So I found myself kind of scratching my head sometimes going, gosh, what do I understand about this and what maybe I can help y'all understand. Let's talk first about what radical acceptance is not, because really it seems a little counterintuitive if something bad or unwelcome is happening, that's that supposed to be good? Or that's something I'm supposed to accept? You know, I used before the example of empty nest. But are you supposed to accept a tornado going through your house or a friend's death, abuse, your partner having an affair? What do these authors mean that we're supposed to accept those things, that everything is okay that happens? On one level, that seems a little crazy or somehow very wrong. So I wanted to quote some experts for example, Margaret Tartaskovsky, that was hard to say, <laughs> this author writes about what are general misconceptions about radical acceptance. She's an associate editor for Psych Central, and she writes about some of the misconceptions. For example, if I accept what happened, then I approve of it, then I like it, then I'm okay with it, then I excuse something like abuse, or I absolve the person who deeply hurt me of all responsibility then I allow the infidelity, then I can't do anything about losing my job or losing my home, I can't change it, then I resign myself to being miserable, then I keep wallowing in suffering, and then she continues. Radical acceptance doesn't mean any of these things. And she quotes psychotherapist Sherry Van Dyck. It simply means that you're acknowledging reality. You're acknowledging what happened or what's currently happening because fighting reality only intensifies our emotional reaction. Before we take this apart a little, I also want to quote Tara Brock herself, who wrote the very successful book, Radical Acceptance, in 2003. Her language is a little bit flowery, but here's an excerpt. We lay the foundations of radical acceptance by recognizing when we are caught in the habit of judging, resisting, and grasping, and how we constantly try to control our levels of pain and pleasure. We lay the foundations of radical acceptance by seeing how we create suffering when we turn harshly against ourselves and by remembering our intention to love life. As we let go of our stories of what is wrong with us, we begin to touch what is actually happening with a clear and kind attention. 
We release our plans or fantasies and arrive open-handed in the experience of this moment. Whether we feel pleasure or pain, the wings of acceptance allow us to honor and cherish this ever-changing life as it is. I'm not sure why this image suddenly came to mind, but it did. So let's see if it helps. My brothers, when I was a kid, both older and taller than me, would tease me or want to get my goat, so they would hold their arm out straight with the palm of their hand on my forehead and then taunt me to hit them. (laughs) I'd try with all my might, and they'd laugh, of course, as I flailed around. I didn't realize that if I accepted the reality of my arms never being as long as theirs and that I'd never be able to hit them, I likely would have just simply stepped backward, and that would have been that. But instead, my emotions flared. I felt angry and stubborn. I wasn't seeing the reality right in front of me. And I was continuing fighting a fight that would forever be impossible to win. If I'd simply acknowledged the facts, I would have saved myself a good deal of embarrassment and suffering. But that example is about a silly siblings fight. What if the facts are much more potent and damaging? For example, we're all living through a pandemic. What a lesson is this in radical acceptance? But I work with people every day who are facing horrible loss, unwelcome change. Their mania is returning full force. Their depression is swinging down into suicidality. Their child has developed an illness. Their mother, Alzheimer's. What are these authors suggesting that would help? Is an acceptance giving up, being too passive, feeling as if you are a victim of circumstance, whether that circumstance is positive or painful? I don't think so. When I reread Dr. Brock's excerpt, I think I was most struck by this phrase, how we constantly try to control our levels of pain and pleasure, and then the words judging, resisting, grasping. If it's going to hurt, you can resist the idea of something's reality. If we are grasping for what we want to be true instead of what is actually happening, then that can lead us to more suffering. This reminds me of so many people I've worked with who just can't accept change, who fight constantly to maintain a certain persona, who insist that others around them never talk about the elephant in the room or are vicious if the elephant is mentioned, who just don't want life to change, who are always yearning to be someone else, shorter, taller, richer, more successful. And then there are others who are in the habit of wallowing in what is wrong, in self-pity, rather than just accepting what has happened and acknowledging it. So I tried to break these down into steps that I could understand. The first step would be what Kara Brock would call clear seeing, but I think what most of us now, way past 2003, would call mindfulness. And mindfulness is not passive. It is more quiet, and it's not grasping, nor is it struggling. It's just simply being aware of what is and acknowledging its presence, noting it. The second step is letting go of mental and emotional habits where you might judge or resist something that is happening because you think you're protecting yourself. You don't want to get hurt. But in actuality, it brings you more hurt. The third step is to have compassion for yourself. There's nothing wrong if you see yourself resisting or wanting to not accept. You can be compassionate because it's hard to accept. And the fourth step is releasing what you thought was going to happen and to be in the moment of what's actually happening. It's a release from your expectations and simply to accept what is. And thereby, you free up energy 
be it mental or emotional, to take action in a way that doesn't bring more pain. It doesn't mean that you don't do anything about it. Let's see, you can see that your marriage is in a huge amount of trouble. That doesn't mean you just acknowledge it and go, well, I guess we're going to stop loving each other. But you can acknowledge, rather than being in denial, that your marriage is in the pits, that you're not communicating, that you're even falling out of love with one another. You can say, let's do something about this. I can acknowledge this is happening. And then you free up energy to work on it. But so many people stay in denial of what the reality of their lives is. I'll use an example from my own life. Looking back, I know that if I truly accepted my first failure in marriage, if I hadn't been caught up trying so hard to paint a pretty picture of why I'd done what I've done, justifying the fix I was trying to make, Or from the very beginning, if I'd looked at our many differences before we married and realized the reality of their presence, rather than painting a rosy picture of what our life would be like together. I've used the phrase on this podcast, falling in love with the story of your relationship, rather than actually falling in love with a person. If I'd listened to myself, stayed quiet, looked at the facts, accepted my vulnerability and my poor self-esteem, which were driving everything, and seeing how I was grasping and trying to shape reality into what I wanted it to be, then perhaps a lot of hurt could have been avoided. This is not being passive or a victim. What it is, is acceptance of the moment, compassion for yourself, and then releasing yourself into what actually is. One of the things I often say to people, and you've probably heard me say it on this podcast, when someone is wanting someone to give them something and they're not, I'll say, well, you can't get ice cream at a hardware store. Your expectation, your grasping on to what you want, is not accepting the fact that perhaps they don't have the ability to give it to you. If you believe that they're withholding it from you, then, of course, that's one reality. But if you don't, if you realize they don't have it to give, then that's so much easier to tolerate. You may still leave the relationship, or you may try to teach them, or whatever you choose to do. But you're not going to get stuck, and your pain over it will be lessened. Again, I mentioned a few minutes ago, this pandemic is certainly inviting all of us to do just this, to accept what we need to accept, to acknowledge its reality, and then to make the choices we can to live in this moment, to find meaning in this moment, and to not suffer as much. It doesn't mean you're being passive. It simply means you're waiting for acknowledgement and acceptance before you act. The link to Tara Brock's book will be in the show notes, as well as the other quotes that I used. Good luck to you. It's kind of a difficult concept, but I think it's important. The listener email today is from someone who's actually a therapist and has fallen in love with someone very depressed. Hi, Dr. Rutherford. Thank you for taking the time to listen to my question. My question is in regards to how to best support or be there for a partner with depression. I am an associate marriage and family therapist, um, so I've learned a lot from your podcast, so thank you. 
and I obviously have a pretty good understanding of depression, but I myself have never suffered with depression and I haven't been in a relationship with someone that has. Me and my partner have been together for about nine months. Um, His depression started around Christmas. From what I understand, he's kind of battled with depression on and off throughout his life. Um, He's currently seeing a therapist and he, he is exploring medication options, but can't get in to see anyone for a while. And he's been suffering for quite a while. He says he can't get out of bed. He stays in bed most days, except to work, comes home, doesn't want to talk to anyone, crying all the time. He's not suicidal. I check in with him and I try to give him as much space as I can, but it's really hard for me because obviously I am a helper and I want to support him and be there for him. But also I don't know the best way to do that without overdoing it and making sure also that like I'm meeting my own needs because I'm not getting what I want out of the relationship at this point. So any advice you can offer would be really great. Thank you. You know, therapists are people who want to help. And there are a lot of people who want to help, people who are empathic, people who have a lot of caring for others. It's just hard to stand by and watch someone suffer, especially someone that you love. What I did wonder as I listened to this was how much her being a therapist was getting in the way of her allowing herself to accept that she might be having some anger or frustration or even fear that she was falling in love with someone whose depression might be a potential issue for their relationship. She's watching someone she loves become more and more depressed. He is in therapy and they're talking about medications, but his symptoms sound as if they're really affecting his personal and professional life. I have great empathy for people who fight depression. I work with it every day. I see their pain. I see their struggle. And it is so real. The very hard part about having depression is finding the energy to push yourself toward change. Since the symptoms of the disease are fatigue, feeling overwhelmed, and not really caring as much about yourself or others. It's kind of like having a broken leg, but the remedy is going out and running on it. That's just not going to happen. What usually would be motivating, just all of that can go away. It takes energy to simply brush your teeth. Yet this man that she loves has to find his own fight. She can't do that for him. And it is a terribly helpless feeling. The best thing to do is talk about how you're feeling as you watch the struggle. What you're concerned about, the changes you see, the fears you have, the concerns you have, and encourage the heck out of therapy or whatever else might help. Because what you don't want is for the depression to rule your relationship any more than it's going to by its very nature. So you can talk honestly with him about what you see his depression doing to him, but how also you worry or you get concerned. Maybe you even have fears about him hurting himself. That's something you both have got to talk about. So good luck to him and to you. Thank you so much for being here at Self Work. Believe it or not, my actual wish for almost a hundred recommendations or endorsements for Perfectly Hidden Depression is happening. I guess as more and more people are reading it and enjoying it, and they're letting that be known by a rating on Amazon. Thank you. So maybe that's some of you, and I cannot tell you how much I appreciate it. Also, the podcast reviews keep coming in, and that just warms my heart when I see what some of you write. One person wrote this past week, as soon as she hears the music, she feels herself calm down. I'm so honored that you've invited me into your life like you have. 
There are lots of ways of getting in touch with me. My website is drmargaretrutherford.com, and you can subscribe there, and you get a weekly newsletter with the podcast and my weekly blog post, and just perhaps a note from me. That's it, I promise. You can email me at askdrmargaret at drmargaretrutherford.com. I do read all your emails. I may not have time to get back individually with each and every one of you, but I keep those in mind trying to figure out what I'm going to talk about here on the podcast. I'm really enjoying, I avoided Instagram for a long time. I didn't really know much about it, but I'm really loving it. To me, you can get to know people so much better on Instagram. I'm not a big Twitter lover, so I'm really enjoying a series that I'm doing right now and what I've learned as a therapist on Instagram. And I'd love to have you over there. It's just Instagram.com slash Dr. Margaret Rutherford. And then, of course, those of you who are in the group already know about this, but I have a closed group on Facebook, facebook.com slash groups slash self-work. And for those of you who have not read the book yet, Perfectly Hidden Depression, How to Break Free from the Perfectionism that Masks Your Depression, is actually more like a workbook. It has 60 exercises, or actually, I think 62, that I've pulled from my practice that I use with almost everyone, trying to help them both write about, journal about, Describe what's going on with them so that not only do you know what is happening with you, but you begin to figure out the why. There are lots of workbooks on perfectionism, but I think mine might be the only one that actually tries to, kind of like a weed you're trying to pull up from the ground, if you don't get it at its root, it won't come up. So I'm trying to help people who have to stay in control of their lives to let go of that a little bit and realize why and how that became so important and then change it for the better. So that's available wherever you buy books. Again, thank you for being here. It is a great honor to be in your life. Take very, very good care. Please, in these times, stay safe, but take care of your emotional health as well. Or what I've said in the past, stay safe and sane. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self Work.